All right, welcome everyone to the Surveillance Port 156 Q&A, where we are answering questions from some of our patrons. If you would like to ask us a question, $5 a month. Or more, but you know, that's the minimum. Our first question this week is coming from, I'm just going to say Popeyes because that's a long name. It says, do you guys think there will ever be a Fairphone or Librem phone that has hardware that competes against Apple or even Google Pixels? That's the only thing that keeps me on mainstream devices is significantly improved hardware. Me personally, I don't know that much about hardware, to be honest with you. I'm more of a software guy. I'm assuming there's some kind of barrier to entry there that's keeping phones from being competitive. I wonder if maybe it's like a um, like a bulk thing. Like, you know, you get the best price if you buy something in bulk. So maybe whereas people like Google and Apple can buy a bunch of chips, and then if they don't use them, like repurpose them or toss them or resell them or something, maybe these companies can't get them at that same volume. Or once they do get them, they kind of have to use them until they run out. Do you know anything about the hardware supply chain? Or, Well, Purism and a lot of these Linux devices are going to struggle a little bit more if they try to have a more open source hardware stack, uh, which is super hard to do. I believe that was one of the limitations for Purism's Librem 5, one of infinite limitations, but um, <laughs> one of them I think definitely was that they are trying to have as many of the components open source as possible, and that's not easy to do. That's a good point, yeah, because then there's certain things you just can't purchase because they're proprietary. Right. And even then, there still are some proprietary parts of the Librem 5. I want to say the modem was one of them. There's just some things they couldn't do. I think that's true for the Pine Phone, too. Yeah. Just based on memory, so people should fact check that. But I actually don't know what you're talking about with the Fairphone, because the Fairphone is fairly competitive to other mainstream devices. Most people who get a Fairphone, it is a very flagship-esque device that seems to compete uh, on the hardware level. I just don't think anyone is really competing with Apple on the chip side of things right now. I mean, when you look at the differences between even the Tensor chip and the Apple chips in both efficiency and performance, Apple's just kicking butt right now. I think camera performance is a totally different story, but I don't know. That's all I have to add. I think that it's it's tough, and frankly, on my end, I don't really care. <laughs> like, as long as it runs things quick enough and I can have a messenger and, you know, load load up some websites, it doesn't impact me too much, but I could see why some people would value that. Fortunately, Pixels, there's a lot of options. You can do a lot of things with Pixels, so you can still benefit from that hardware and just change out the software, which kind of leads into the next question. Well, not the next question, but a later down question. Oh, yeah. Dressing Gown asked, do you think NoScript is still worth using for most people outside of those with the strictest threat models? I think it depends on the browser. I do think NoScript and disabling JavaScript in any capacity tends to be a more extreme thing to do, mainly because it's so prevalent across the internet. If you visit most websites, they're going to give you some issues unless you're just visiting text-based websites or something like that. But we try on the Techler side and stuff like that to make things JavaScript friendly in the sense of if you don't have JavaScript, things will load, but you still can't do everything. Like our VPN chart and some of our tools don't load without JavaScript. And so uh, you're going to have to constantly be going in and disabling things. So I think if you're someone who's really DIY and wants to get down and dirty and you don't mind some of the inconvenience, I say go for it. But I don't think it's worth using for most people just as a default. I would never say like install no script as just a default recommendation to the average person. I just wouldn't say that to the person I know in real life. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. Well, first off, I wanted to be noted the new oil is JavaScript free. I'm proud of that. It's it's also not as complicated as like your VPN chart and stuff like that. So yeah, it gets complicated with those tools. I wish that those tools were easier to do without JavaScript. 
No, my web developers were not happy. Long story short, they reached out to me and made a really good pitch on like, hey, we can make your website look better. And I saw the proof of concept. I'm like, wow, that is really good. And so when I was talking to them, I was like, all right, the one thing that's non-negotiable is no JavaScript. Do you think you can still do that? And they were like, yes, but it'll take longer. But I think it's been worth it. I'm kind of with you. I don't have anything against no script, but I think for most people, like, first of all, I recommend you block origin, as I think most people do. And uBlock has a JavaScript blocking feature. So if you want to go that route, the functionality is built in there for you. And people should really check out the documentation for uBlock because it's very well written. It's very easy to grasp. Like, even if you're not an expert, you will be able to understand what they're they're saying. And there's different modes that you can use. There's like, you know, hard mode. I think there's like nightmare mode. And I think for me, at least you can get all the way up to like hard mode without any significant breakage. Although keep in mind, I don't frequent a lot of the same websites that most people do like Facebook and Amazon and stuff. So maybe I'm wrong, but, and you could always go in and do it individually too. So yeah, like I would say, just check the documentation on uBlock and try that. I'm not opposed to no script other than the fact that it's just, you should keep your extensions to a minimum. I do use no script in Mulvad browser and it's something that I do utilize and Tor browser as well. So it's something that I do have firsthand experience with, and I use it almost every day, but it's not something I'm going to recommend. Is it just me, or does Tor Browser not save your settings with no script? I don't mess with it in Tor Browser. Oh, okay. I, I thought you meant you mess with it, like when you said you use it. No, I just use it. It's there, but I don't touch. I almost never visit the same site on Tor, because I use Tor for disposable stuff, so I wouldn't even know, I think, if it remembered the settings. I tried getting really deep into Tor Browser, and I noticed it. I, I would set up no script in a way that I liked that worked for me, and then when I'd close Tor Browser and open it up again, like the next day, it was back to default. And I'm just like, well, this is useless. But maybe I did it wrong. So If it's that way on by design, there might be a way to still set it up with persistence. I don't know how to do that, though. That would be nice. Okay, our next question comes from Mr. Camel, which is a two-parter. So the first part, what is the best launcher for Android in terms of privacy and security? Of course, I'm assuming the default is probably good, but what about for those who don't have a Pixel specifically or just not comfortable with flashing a custom OS? While it's not the ideal scenario, it would still be valuable, in my opinion, to choose a good launcher to improve just a bit, little bit. And then second part is, what's your favorite Android launcher? I don't have any opinions here because, honestly, I, I use the default. When I was on Stock Pixel, I use the default. Now that I'm on Custom, I use the default. I'm just kind of cool with Android and the way it looks. Like, I'm not going to say I love it. I, I don't really have a strong opinion. It works, and I don't have any issues with it. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You have some experience with launchers, so you might have a different opinion. I have one favorite to mention, but you're, you're, what you said of if it's not broke, don't fix it is the best launcher because most launchers that come by default aren't putting you in any further jeopardy. You know, if you're on stock Android and you're using Google's launcher, they're not going to be collecting any extra data about you from the launcher. And if you're on a custom ROM, most of them are already privacy respecting and it's actually probably opening you up to more issues if you even try to look for a third party one. So I would just say the best is probably going to be the default, unless for whatever reason, there's some weird privacy invasive thing that's in your default launcher on some weird third party version of Android. I don't know. I do like O launcher though, just the letter O launcher. It's on F droid. It's open source. I actually, I think a year or two ago, I sent over like 20 bucks to the developer for that one because I liked it so much. It's just super clean, super minimal. All it is is text. So it's just think of like- I think like you posted a, screenshots of that one before. It does look pretty cool. Yeah, super cool. And you can customize where, so think of like five items, you set your favorites. So for me, someone who doesn't like to use their device as much, I just want to have access to five things. And you also has shortcuts. So if you swipe left, it takes you to your phone 
dialer. Or if you swipe right, it takes you to your calculator. And so you can have swipes, and it has your five core applications. You can put them on the left, center, or the right. And it even can, has a daily wallpaper option. And uh, it's all text-based. So I, I love text-based things. So O-Launcher is my favorite. Kind of on this note, we mentioned earlier about custom ROMs in this in this sense, and Yaya asked, you mentioned in the past that Google Pixel's hardware is secure and provides possibly the best security available for phone hardware. I was initially concerned that we can't trust the hardware much because one, it's closed source, and two, it's designed, built, and paid for by Google. Is this something we should be concerned about? And does... I'm totally keeping that in. But pretty much they ask if using a custom ROM is going to protect you on a Google hardware device. I would actually, you know, I'm going to answer this briefly here, but I made a whole, I forgot how long the video was, but I think it was like a 12 plus minute video on TechLore, which was kind of a thought experiment of I was putting myself in Google's shoes and trying to go through the ways I could collect people's data. And so I was exploring things like, oh, okay, I can install a backdoor and a chip. And I went through what that would look like and the amount of effort, money, time, cost, and the ridiculousness that I would need to go through to pull it off without anyone ever knowing. And so I kind of went through that thought experiment of all the areas that Google can track. And in my opinion, it's just a (laughs) non-issue. Like, if you're concerned about this, you're not going to be taking any steps in your privacy and security journey because there's going to be nothing you can do if you're thinking about stuff that is so near impossible to pull off with so little evidence to back it up. So that's my personal opinion. I would say a custom ROM is going to take care of almost all the issues that you're going to experience on a stock Android device. There's no evidence we have that Google has some secret way of tracking people via a custom ROM that we don't know about. I think the only thing I have to add to that is every reputable person in the privacy community, and I said what I said, universally agrees that if you were to flash a custom OS, for example, the chip's just not really an issue. Whether it's, you know, the way the OS is designed or something, like, every single one of them agrees. Nobody is out here like, well, it's, I mean, you know, there's, there's like, sure, it's possible because it's closed source and, like, anything is possible, you know. But it's, it's extremely unlikely. Everyone universally agrees. And even the OS that you mentioned, like, one thing I will give the developer is they're very focused on privacy and security. Like, they really take the security of this thing seriously, and I find it hard to believe that they would build their entire project around a phone that they didn't believe could protect their users like that. So I, I think that alone should kind of put your mind at ease a little bit. Hypothetical threats versus real threats. Take care of the real threats, not the hypothetical threats. That's the thing, just a real quick a touch on, I, I wrote a blog about this, you're always trusting someone at some point. Like, Signal's server is open source, and people have pointed out, like, well, what if they upload something different on their servers? We could play the what-if game till the universe ends. It also doesn't matter with Signal. It protects you from your device. It doesn't matter if the server's compromised. It's ridiculous. But my point is, like, and that goes for any project, though. Like, people do that with, like, VPNs. Like, usually Proton, because everybody loves to hate hate Proton. But, like, what if Proton has a different code on their servers? Like, we could play this game forever, and you'll never have answers. You have to hit a point where you're like, I have reasonable evidence. I, like, I'm going to make a decision. You, just, you have to believe something at some point. I also should have said this up front, but I apologize if I sound stuffy. I live in Texas, and allergies hate me, and it's that time of year. Okay, our next question comes from David Johnson. Do you know of a website that collects and lists widely used FOSS resources for privacy and security, along with links and suggested donation amounts to keep them going? Something that can let people know if what they are relying on is in need of support but would not process the payment itself so it doesn't come under laws. You go on to say, like, maybe TechLore or the New Oil could do something like that. I'm not doing that, for the record. 
such a collection would be subjective and a selection to criticism or is open to criticism, but it's probably better than nothing, which nothing leads to valuable projects dying due to lack of support or to an environment that favors false projects to deploy the most obnoxious and copious reminders to support them. So I do like where your brain is going. Like, I like the fact that you recognize that FOSS is severely underfunded and you want to support it. Okay, so from my end, I don't see myself doing anything like this because the big issue is the amount of resources that would go into creating this list in the first place. And I don't mean just like finding all these projects and listing them, but you're talking about specifically highlighting the ones that really need money. Well, how do you determine that? Because there's people like Ublock Origin that specifically refuse to take money. Wasn't there another one like a year ago that they ended up actually like turning off donations because they got a huge government grant and they were like, hey, we don't need money anymore. So please spend your money on other projects that need it. Point being, like there's a lot of projects out there that like they might have a donation option, but they don't really need it. And how do you know? Like because that that goes into the project and the developer, you know, is the developer in that position? Do they want to expand? Are they happy where they're at? How do you determine that? And then how do you keep it updated in real time? Because a lot of these people don't use something like Open Collective, which even then that's not real time. They still have to go in and enter the receipts and stuff like that. But you know, you'd have to find some way of like continuously polling or, or reading their disclosures, which some don't do public disclosures. Like I don't know, this just this just sounds way too technically hard to pull off, in my opinion. But I do like the idea, for the record. My first thought is I feel like this already kind of exists. This is kind of just Libra Pay just a little bit different. Like, if you go to LibrePay, a lot of open source projects are already there, and you can kind of do the ex- the explore route, and it shows you the amount of money each project has, and most of them have a description that shows what the money's used for and how much they need. It's not exactly what you're asking for, but that actually isn't too far off. So if you wanted to just look for well-regarded fossil resources that need kind of support, I would check out LibrePay. And I do like the idea. I think it's possible to do that. It would just take a lot of time and it would take a lot of effort. And I know I don't have time for that right now, but it would be cool to see something like this. I think my only issue with LibrePay is that it's not a complete picture, you know, because like, for example, the new oil, we take all kinds of different donation routes. And so what you see on LibrePay may not reflect all the other sources of income we have. Well, my point is like the the foundation is already there with LibrePay. LibrePay could you know, allow you to set a goal amount like Patreon and you can put in, you know, a different source. And I think that that if someone could just turn around and quickly create this idea, it would have to be something like LibrePay. Uh, it would put, it would just take so much effort for anyone else to do this. And everybody would have to standardize on the same platform. So it's automated or that, or it would have to become a whole thing with people like manually following up. But I think payment processing would be tough too, uh, unless you had. Well, you did explicitly say to... it wouldn't process the payments, so that way there's no like KYC laws. But then, anything. how do you know how much they're making? You know, a lot of that's right. automatic, so they're going to have to self-report every month and be and say, "Hey, we made this much money last month. We need this much, and it's going to be a constant thing they have to maintain." Which I would hate if I was a FOSS project. Oh, agreed. That would be a nightmare. Yeah. I will say, in lieu of a platform like this, I think the next best option is just, and we say this all the time, support the projects that you like. Like, right now, I'm giving I'm giving some money to Signal, even though I know they've got grants and stuff, and I give some money to Cubes, because those are the two things that I use every single day, constantly. My Cubes computer is right next to me right now, and, like, those are the ones I get the most value out of by far. I get a lot of value out of other things, and I pay for other things too, like Proton, but just, I looked at those things and I'm like, what do I use the most? Signal, cubes. Yeah, I can give $5 a month to those. 
I was thinking that too. Just contribute to the projects you use. Like we've said before, if just 5% of people who used every piece of software just donated a dollar, a FOSS industry wouldn't be very underfunded. It sounds ridiculous. If just 5% of people who use the software donated a dollar, it sounds like nothing, but it's actually significantly more than what these projects are actually receiving. Not to harp on it, but that's a good point, a dollar. Because I know most people are sitting here and they're like, yeah, but I use... 20 different projects. You know, I've got my custom OS on my phone. I've got my email provider. I've got my VPN. I've got, you know, this notes app. I've got this photo app, this, that, and the other. And some of those are paid or should be paid like a VPN, for example. My point being like, yeah, $5 a month can add up real quick there. But like you said, if it's even a dollar, if everybody did that for the record, I know some people are literally living paycheck to paycheck, can't afford that. That's fine. That's valid. But for those who can to even just a dollar to each project, like, okay, total, that's going to add up to what, maybe 10, 15, 20 bucks a month? Maybe, I don't know. I don't know how many programs most people use, but, and if everybody did that, that would probably make a pretty significant difference, so. I agree. And we're speaking from experience, because we look, we know, we've said this before, but we know our numbers, and we've even said if, I think, 1% of our monthly audience donated a dollar, we would, it would just be so much higher than what we currently get. And that's, and that's us. I think open source projects might even be worse, because we, have other revenue models like ads. Ads are almost nothing, but we do have ads and we also have a few, like we have Monero, LibrePay and all this stuff. A lot of open source projects are just like, hey, send us a little something. I know the new oil gets over 10,000 visitors a month and it's like, dude, if half of those people donated a dollar, I could quit my day job. Right. Hapricot asked, can you recommend any good alternatives to Dropbox for syncing a KeyPass database file across Android and iPad and a MacBook? Ugh, that's one of my least favorite combinations. It's the Android device that makes things tricky, because if you're on the just Apple ecosystem with this, you would just use iCloud. But it really is going to depend on your KeePass clients you're using. I believe if you're using KeePass DX, that's going to integrate through your file explorer or or whatnot, and so you're going to have to find a way to sync that. You could use something like SyncThing to accomplish this if you are going to sync on a local network. Otherwise, you might be talking about, uh, what was it? starting to blank on the other one. KeePass to Android. KeePass to Android has some cloud providers built in, but I remember there was something they were kind of just, it wasn't a huge issue, but I remember that there was something they didn't implement as securely as they could have. It wasn't a security issue, I don't think, not something massive, but I do remember there was something there that caused people to flock to KeePass DX. So I would just see what your KeePass clients can support. Otherwise, uh, that you're kind of limited to that. You can try out different KeePass clients to see if other ones have different ways to import. But I would also say there's nothing wrong with Dropbox for just syncing a KeePass file. I did it for like a year and a half. I created a brand new free Dropbox account with no real information, and I just use it to sync that file. It's an encrypted file, and it's fine on Dropbox, I think. So if you really want something better, I say go for it if your KeePass client can integrate with it. Otherwise, I say Dropbox is fine. Just use it for that file. All right, I'm going to be difficult. Like usual. I'm going to be kind of mean, but like, please genuinely answer this one in the comments for me, people. Why not just use Bitwarden at that point? Like, I I genuinely don't understand, like, because the main concerns I see with Bitwarden is that it's cloud-based. And like, what if somebody gets access to your vault, a la LastPass? This is not solving that issue in any way, shape, or form. Is it lack of trust in Bitwarden, which I don't really understand because Bitwarden is open source and audited and has been, you know, reviewed by people who are way smarter than the two of us combined. And if not, like, can you self-host? Because I know there's Vault Warden is out there. It's like a, I don't know too much about it, but I know some of the people in my community use, use it and recommend it. It's kind of like a, a, I guess like a less bloated fork of Keypad or uh, Bitwarden. 
I don't know. I just, I feel like at this point you're jumping through a lot of hoops to not really get what's the word I'm looking for. It's like, it's like the, the cost benefit. You're, you're, you're putting a lot of work into this and you're getting diminishing returns. I feel like, but that said, if maybe you just, whatever your reason is, yeah, I don't think Dropbox is the worst option because Henry has a good point that it's, you know, it's an encrypted database. Like when, it, as long as it's not unlocked, which it should only be unlocked on your device. I, I think as far as like providers to sync it up, I mean, there's, there's Filin, there's Proton now that they finally rolled out client. Well, I guess not on Mac. They should be, they should have Mac coming soon. And then once they do, there's Proton. So go figure between the time that we recorded this and the time that we released this, Proton released their Mac OS app for Drive or Drive app for Mac OS, however you want to put it. So there is now a, a Proton Drive app for Mac. This is just a reminder why you should be subscribed to get all the latest news because this stuff literally changes that fast. And if you're subscribed, you will hear more about that on Surveillance Report 157, which should be out in a few more days. But I just wanted to throw that out there. The problem is those won't sync on mobile. That's the issue. Like on iOS, for example, it's going to be hard to get the KeePass client to recognize a file inside of Proton. That's why this is tough. It's really dependent on the KeePass client you use. I know I also used to sync up a KeePass database, but I used sync.com and I was on iOS back then. I don't know if I downloaded it or what, but maybe you could look into that. They're proprietary for the record. They're not open source, but I've never had any issues with them. They have been audited. They'll send you your, their white paper if you email them. I think it might actually be on their website. They just emailed it to me in response to a question recently. Sync.com is good. Filin's an option. Um, I know there's one I'm forgetting. Mega, if you want to trust them. Nextcloud, if that's a thing. Nextcloud has a built-in password manager. Personally, I don't trust it, but that is also an option if you're self-hosting. I mean, there's, there's some options out there for sure. So I would check into some of those. And yeah, on that note, 1Password, you could also consider that one. They're not open source, but they're very well regarded and they've been audited and all that fun stuff. Okay, and this last one, I thought it might be fun to address this one because it kind of gives people a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. So this person says, I have two questions. First one, did your release schedule change? Not trying to say anything negative, just wondering because a lot of the time I listen to you guys on Monday night, but I've noticed sometimes it's a little sporadic and I know you guys have a life outside all this and stuff. Number two, do you think it would be possible to upload an uncut Q&A segment to Patreon only? Appreciate the work you guys do and please keep it up. So just a little peek behind the curtain. We try to record Friday nights. That mostly depends on me because my day job is frequently more than 40 hours, especially on a Friday. And then we take turns each week editing. I try to have them done by Sunday night. Like I intentionally keep my editing weeks clear, weekends clear so I can edit. But I mean, like this past weekend, I, I missed the mark because like I had to get a wrap for my snake and that it was raining and it's traffic and it took like two hours when it should have taken 30 minutes maybe 45 so that cut out a significant amount of editing time for me so our schedule is supposed to be i think sunday nights is when the podcast is supposed to come out and then we never really actually settled on a date for the q a's but i think we aim for like sometime between wednesday and friday but yeah just things come up we try to get them out sundays as much as possible but i think things just come up i don't know if there's anything you want to add to that not really. I mean, it's just, it's, it's tough. Like we, we've had to change our internal schedules. We used to record Saturdays and then I started having, I started not being able to record on Saturdays. And so I had to start cutting into Nate's Friday evenings to record. And then it really just depends on how our weekends look. You know, we, we also have to have free time too. And so a lot of times we have to book things on the weekends. And so sometimes I'll record Friday. If it's my week to edit, I'll record Friday with Nate. And then Saturday I just can't edit. And then I have to do everything on Sunday. 
So Sunday, I get everything together. I do all the edits. I do the upload, and I hate publishing these things because there's like, there's, it's, it's kind of beastly. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's terrible because like on a, on a regular video I would do for Tech Lore, it's just one video. I upload a video, I do one thumbnail, one title, and it's done. But with this, it's <laughs> four renders, right? Because you have surveillance support, surveillance support VIP, surveillance support audio surveillance support vip audio and you have to upload those four times and copy t- different timestamps because the timestamps for vip is different than the regular one and i hate doing timestamps because it just takes 10 minutes to get all the like all the different timestamps and write them all out so people know where to find things and and then there's different platforms too so like the video and the audio are uploaded on different platforms so we have to do that like he said four times and then Right now, the it, it's it's on my never-ending to-do list to figure out. But right now, the sync from PeerTube is broken. So, like, I have to go manually upload to PeerTube. And then that requires another render because now DaVinci has a thing where we can do subtitles. So I have to go create the subtitles, export those, upload those. Yeah. It, it takes a lot. It probably takes a good... If the internet is cooperating and things upload fast, it probably takes at least an hour to do just the uploads. <laughs> That's why, like, I actually had this past week. I had it done Friday night. And I just uploaded it to our shared folder and I told him, I'm like, hey, here's the thumbnail or here's the timestamps in case you have time to do it tomorrow. It's like 11 o'clock here. I need to go to bed. I have work. And it's a very fast turnaround. It is better than it used to be because when it was just me, it was all in one day. So for me, it was a like 12 hour turnaround of sit down, put stories together, record, edit, upload. Um, so now at I least the it's stories now. over the course of two and a half days. Oh yeah. And that's not even something we mentioned. You spend the whole week putting stories together for the if notes. If I'm smart, sometimes I just throw the stories in the file and I'm like, oh, I'll take notes later. And then Thursday night I'm sitting there just going, Fuck, trying to take notes on like 15, 30 no, it's like 30. Usually it's like 30 or 40 stories. I'm just like, God, I wish I'd have done this throughout the week instead of cramming it all in Thursday night. I guess to answer the question formally, we try our best. And this is also our secondary thing. Like, Tech lore is my main thing at the end of the day, and Nate's the new oil is the main thing. And so this is actually prioritized a little bit, should be prioritized a bit lower than our main project. Sometimes that changes, but we just do our best. And it's a lot of work. There's a ton of steps to get these videos out. It seems simple, but like we got to put all the stories together. We have to put notes together. We have to record. We have to edit. We have to publish. And so it takes a while. So we appreciate the patience. We don't normally get comments of people going like, oh my gosh, you guys suck with your upload schedules. So thank you all for being patient with us. Yeah. And that too, I mentioned I have a day job. So a lot of the time there's things I just can't do until I have a weekend. So anyways, number two, would it be possible to do an uncut Q and a segment? I don't know. We can talk about that one. I'm going to be honest. Probably not. Cause we already just went over how much work this is as it is. But. I don't want to have to do four uploads for the Q and a too. The Q and a is normally nice. Cause it's like, Oh, I only have to upload the video and audio and I still have to do the audio twice because there's the VIP RSS feed, but it's the same one. You still have to publish it twice, though. <laughs> but so there's like three for the VIP. That's what makes the Q and A nice. Is I don't know if you guys have noticed, we tend to be a little looser with the editing on that one, and it's a lot faster because, like, one of the reasons we do the Q and A thing, in addition to give giving patrons a perk, is back when we used to not have Patreon we would get conflicting. Like some people would be like, Oh my God, I don't want your opinions. I don't want your jokes. Just tell us the news and the facts. And then other people would be like, no, you should ramble more. You should tell more jokes. Like we love that. And so it it really did solve that problem. I mentioned, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. Like it, it really solved that problem because now the people who 
want to hear more and like us and like hearing our voices, you know, if you throw a few bucks our way, you get to hear the expanded version. Again, totally optional. I understand not everyone has money, but, and now the people who are like, I just want the news. Cool. There it is for free. Like, just go get the news. So, and and anyways, point being like with the Q and a, generally speaking, it's the people who aren't here just for the news. So we can kind of afford to be a little bit looser with the, the editing. So, and that was Nate's idea. We talked about this for a long time. I'm an efficiency freak. And so when he was telling us we need to have a VIP upload, I already was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be miserable. <laughs> like every week having to do a second render and a second upload and having to have two different timelines in DaVinci Resolve to manage for the same video sounded like a nightmare. It's fine. And I'm re- it's the best part is that we get to offer a perk. And that's the best part. It's just my efficiency is like, oh, it's going to drive me crazy to do that every week. And on that note, that's all we got for the Q&A. So thank you guys very much. Great questions as always. We love hearing from you guys. And if any of you have a question you're burning to ask for $5 a month or more, join our Patreon and you might be featured on the next episode. So thank you guys very much. Thanks for keeping us going. And we uh, will see you on the next episode of Surveillance Report.